Amen. Thank you, Molly. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, a couple announcements before we jump into our text today. Uh, obviously, our kids of all ages are with us, which is exciting. And uh, we, Every fifth Sunday, we have our kids down, but they're all with us. Uh, for now, in the time being, we're just uh, limiting proximity and keeping us sort of spread out here in this big room, uh, doing small things that uh, we hope are helpful. And the second floor rooms are clean, and they're available. If your uh, kid, you know, gets stir-crazy, wants to go up there or whatever, and if you listen real close and keep the door open, you might be able to still hear what I'm saying. It's like, speak up! Like, okay, someone... Um, uh, secondly, offering our buckets are on the back tables. So on your way out, if you planned on giving when uh, the, the, the buckets came by, please uh, drop off your offering, your gift at the, one of those two back tables um, back there. Uh, a third announcement is a, more, a little more lighthearted. Um, several months ago, Kathy Matea came here to the theater, uh, old, you know, famous West Virginia singer, and... Um, had some photos taken for this calendar and the music of historic places. And we are the June edition. Thankfully, we're not January or February because that's already passed. Uh, so we're the June edition. So let me show us here. Uh, they did not want me in the picture for some reason. Uh, but that's kind of cool. And so they gave us a box of them as our recompense for letting them do that. So uh, if you'd like a calendar that uh, honors uh, historical music places in West Virginia. Uh, there's some of those in the back. Uh, as I thought about this weekend and this morning and uh, the changes we are temporarily implementing in light of COVID-19, I kept weighing back and forth how much this may be a pastoral opportunity uh, to teach explicitly on some things and how much it may be like, okay, we're going to do this and then just sort of go on with business as usual. I did not want to advertise a COVID-19 sermon and implicitly promote a public gathering because that seems somewhat counterintuitive. I also think there's a very fine line between engaging the conversations culture has and letting culture lead all of our conversations. Here's what I mean. The sermon in the gathered church should not be a regurgitation of the week's headlines in the news, even with a Christian spin on them. Like, we're not unaware of what happens in the world on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. But when we gather as the body of Christ, our goal is not to see, well, let's see what Mason thinks about this issue. <laughs> our goal is fundamentally different. My skin kind of crawls when I see things on social media like, if your pastor doesn't preach on this, fill in the blank, then you need to find a new church because they don't care about it. Our goal is different than many in the world. Our goal here is worship and spiritual formation, that we would make much of Christ as we journey to Christ with the body of Christ as the body of Christ, preaching the message of Christ for all to hear. I do think this moment, though, is a unique opportunity. Because as people try to make sense of all of this, their theology shows a little bit, revealing how they interact with really big ideas, if they know they're interacting with those big ideas or not. Everyone's uh, thinking about the doctrine of ecclesiology. What is the church? 
What must the church do to be the church? Why do we gather? How do we gather? What if we can't gather in the normal forms we're used to gathering? We're all thinking about our doctrine of what it means to be human, our anthropology. How do our physical bodies and the physical bodies of others impact spiritual decisions that we make? We're having conversations about authority. Who makes decisions? Who follows them? Who do I trust? Who do I not trust? Who's out for this end and for that end? We're thinking about the problem of evil. How does a good God allow bad things to happen? And we're asking a simple question, should I be afraid? I'm not going to speak to all of these. I might not even speak to any of these. I want to make clear from the outset, I'm not preaching on the virus. I'm not preaching on the response. I'm not trying to convince you to take it more seriously, and I'm not trying to convince you to take it less seriously. One book of the Bible has been on my mind, and I've read over it this week. One passage has been on my mind specifically, and one verse in that passage. Because this morning I'm interested in the sort of person we are, and the spirit with which we approach our whole lives and ministry, all our interactions with our neighbors. Who am I and how do I face tomorrow? This morning we're reminded that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. The book on my mind has been 2 Timothy. The passage has been the introduction, and the verse is verse 7. So let's turn there now. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul, while imprisoned, is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And Paul believes his death is imminent, and his writing is just tinged with that reality. He writes intimately, he writes urgently, and he writes clearly. He's imploring young Timothy to be faithful in his ministry. He charges them to live a life of holiness and focus on Christ, whatever the cost may be. Ultimately, he beckons Timothy to live the sort of life that he, Paul, has lived. His affection for Timothy is evident. We see in verse 2, to Timothy, my what? My beloved child. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He remembers him in his prayers. He longs to see him. He wants Timothy to come to where he is to have one last personal interaction with him. He's familiar with his mother and grandmother. 
He commends Timothy for a faith, a faith that first lived in that mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. What a beautiful gift are godly mothers and grandmothers. If there is no Lois and there is no Eunice, there is no Timothy. Paul encourages Timothy from the beginning of the letter. You have a beautiful gift. You have a beautiful faith. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. You have a beautiful faith. Now keep that thing burning. (laughs) You have a beautiful faith. Invest in it. Don't forsake it. Don't leave it. Grow in it, deepen in it. May that spark of faith in your heart that's the result of such a godly legacy and your faith and the result of so many prayers and so much example that's been set before you. May that spark of faith be fanned into flame. Don't let it sit there. Nurture the gift God's given you. When he talks about these gifts that may be spiritual gifts, Things like teaching, leadership, etc., that he needs to develop. I think that is partially in view here. But at the very minute, at the very minimum, Paul speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Inside of you, Christian, is the Spirit of God. He indwells you when you turn to God in faith, in repentance, trusting Christ and turning from your sin. The Holy Spirit of God brings life to your inner being, changing your motives, your perspectives, your thoughts, your ambitions, and your plans. And this inner change gives rise to a new way of being, a new way of living in the world around us. Timothy Paul will say throughout the letter, essentially, you have a very difficult path ahead of you. But don't miss this. You have an incredibly powerful God inside of you. You have a very difficult path ahead of you, Timothy. It's not going to be easy. Paul mentions time and time again, oh yeah, all of Asia has turned on me at one point, he says. And then later he'll say, specifically, this person has turned on me. He knows how it feels to have whole groups of people hate him and turn on him. And he knows the sting of individual rejection and betrayal. Know that there will come times of difficulty, he'll say in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same chapter in verse 12, he'll tell Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Like, do you see my life? Bad things happen, but God is good. So Timothy, don't face tomorrow and don't face next month and next year and don't face the rest of your life with fear. This morning, church, we don't face our neighbors, we don't face our churches, we don't face our enemies with fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear. Rather, he's given us a spirit of power and love and self-control because he's given us himself. Rather than just a little bit of power, a little bit of self-control, a little bit of this, God's given us himself. And from him, we receive power, love, and self-control. Power. We love power, I would argue. I would argue it's through a matrix of power that we understand so much of life. Debates we have in theology even are really about power. Right? The fights about soteriology, about salvation. Who decides? Who has authority? Who's the one that makes the call? Our debates about gender. 
Who has authority? Who decides? Who's the one that makes the call? Our debate's about the church. <laughs> Who decides? Who has authority? Who makes the call? We've been catechized by the world in many ways to see all of life through this matrix of power. We're accustomed to seeing things this way. We want to know who's making decisions. We want to know who's benefiting from it. And we want to know why. God, when he gives us a spirit of power, he gives us a spirit of power not to lord over other people, but to be confident in the company of other people. Jesus doesn't give us a power that puffs us up and puts us on a pedestal. He gives us a power that humbles us. The kind of power Paul speaks of is never untethered from the kind of meekness that Jesus speaks of. Dwelling in us is the Almighty One of heaven who has all power. So what? Be humble, be kind, and be bold. Be humble. Be kind and be bold. Be humble because our power does not come from ourselves. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, because your mama and your grandmama were so great, you have all this power. He says we have a spirit inside of us who gives us a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Our power doesn't come from ourselves, our money, our title, our legacy, or anything of the like. Our power comes from God. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, hey, you got this, man. He says, hey, you got God, man. And because you got God, you got this. True power is always humble. Because the Almighty One of heaven dwells in us, we should be kind. The world says to flaunt your power, and the church says to be kind, because that's how the Almighty One tells us to be. In chapter 2, verse 24, Paul says to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to who? Everyone. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Timothy, you must be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting your opponents with gentleness. Kindness does not mean compromise. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a true knowledge of faith. You have a spirit of power, love, and self-control, so be humble with other people. We talked a lot about this last week, actually. Be kind to other people because your kindness may be winsome. You can gently correct them. And then maybe, if what you're saying is the truth, God will open their eyes, they'll repent of their sin, and they'll believe the truth. The goal isn't to win your argument, Timothy. The goal is to win your brother, Timothy. Because we have power, we should be humble, we should be kind, and we should be bold because we are heirs of an, an, un, of an unshakable, there we go, kingdom. We steward the truth of the gospel in the world today. We are ambassadors of God, and his mission cannot fail. 
We are bold because the Almighty One of heaven dwells in us and anything in our lives that gets to us must go through Him first. Our living Father will never leave us and never forsake us and that Spirit is a deposit of that promise. Christian, when we think about living in this, with a spirit of power, we think about living with a spirit of humility, kindness, and boldness. Because our bedrock understanding is that he who's in us is greater than he who's in the world. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. Timothy, as you live out your calling, you're going to need to give and receive love. People will reject you, and you'll have to love them. Now, Paul has a great deal of credibility on this issue. Verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, In my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That's the apostle Paul. Imagine this pivotal moment of Christianity. Our greatest leader gets deserted by everybody. Sounds familiar, does it not? In my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But listen to this. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. We must not forget he's writing this from prison. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. I have been saved from the mouth of the lion, Paul says. He will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom and to him be glory forever and ever, amen. Timothy, Paul says, I, I can't tell you how to face this until you face it, man. Like there's a level of rejection that you're going to face that you're just going to have to experience. But what I can tell you is don't hold it against them. What I can tell you is our God's going to deliver you. You're going to be tempted to give up, Timothy, Paul might say. The heartache, the rejection, the persecution, it can tempt you to live a life, don't miss this, that seeks love and satisfaction from somewhere other than God. The troubles, the heartaches, the sufferings that you're going through can tempt you to say, man, this ain't worth it. <laughs> if only I did this or pursued this, then maybe I could receive love and my life would be a little better. I followed God and look where that got me. Don't give in to that temptation. Don't let that lead to a love of self or a love of comfort that will destroy your ministry and prevent you from living a faithful life because others are going to make that decision, Timothy. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, understand this, Timothy. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Don't miss this. Having the appearance of godliness, 
but denying its power. There's going to be people, Timothy, they're going to give in. They're going to stop pursuing God. They're going to start pursuing themselves because they've stopped loving God and they've started loving the lives of the enemy. The comfort, meaning, satisfaction, and purpose can be found somewhere else. You cannot make that decision if you're going to be faithful with your life. You have to choose love, leaning into God's love and giving God's love, even if no one else loves you. Because he loves you, you can live without receiving love from others. Because you've tasted his love, you want others to know his love. So you don't have to be afraid because you have nothing to lose because you cannot lose the love of your father. So be full of love today. Breathe it in and breathe it out. Fan the flame of love in your heart. For if that flame goes out, you have nothing. This morning, church, we must not let our hearts grow cold to the gospel. I pray that as we're reading this passage, preaching a very simple sermon, it will be as if this is the first time you've ever heard the Bible preached, that this is the first time you've ever seen the Word of God, and it leaps off the page and breathes life into your mind and your heart this morning. May your heart soar in love and serve in love. Love God, Paul says. Obey Him, serve Him. Treasure him and trust him. Love God and with the love with which he loves you, love your neighbor, even the ones who turn your, their back on you. Even if it's hard, man. Even if it's costly. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and finally self-control. Don't be afraid that you can't do this. One of the most prevalent themes I see in pastoral ministry over these last uh, several years is that so many people just have the general attitude toward the Christian life that I just, I just can't do it. <laughs> Don't be afraid that you can't do this. The Spirit of God in you disciplines you. He changes you. He makes you able to do things you cannot do on your own. You have a spirit of self-control, not because it's your personality type. And you don't lack a spirit of self-control because it's not your personality type. You have a spirit of self-control because you have the spirit of God. You can turn from the wrong things and you can turn to the right things. You can do it. You can choose love. You can choose humble, kind, and generous power. Don't face today with pessimism. Don't face tomorrow with pessimism. Don't face tomorrow like, oh, I'm just a broken down, defeated, jacked up sinner. I don't, I'm not going to be able to do anything. I just might as well resign myself to the fact that I can't love other people. I get really bitter. I get really frustrated. So I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to go into a cabin and just kind of shut the doors. And, and that's, that's going to be that. Timothy Paul says, don't face your ministry with Pessimism, a fruit of God's presence in your life is self-control. Verse 22 of chapter 2, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Together, you guys just need to run from your sin, run from youthful passions, and pursue the right kind of things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies because they breed quarrels and a servant of God must not be what? 
quarrelsome. Don't give in to your flesh. Don't give in to carnal cravings. Run from sin. Flee it. And if you fall today, run tomorrow. Don't give in to foolish, ignorant controversies that breed fights. Elsewhere, he'll say, like a good soldier, stay focused on your mission. A soldier doesn't, doesn't get bogged down with civilian affairs. An American soldier on an army base in Germany doesn't walk into a, a German accountant's office and say, accountant, what do I do today? It's irrelevant to him. Sure, his world exists and it has integrity and it matters, but it's not the world he's called to deal with right now. He listens to his commanding officer. Like a good soldier, stay focused on your mission. Don't get bogged down in civilian affairs. It's not your business. Fulfill your ministry with focus. Now let's zoom back out a little bit. As Paul charges Timothy to live a life of Christian faithfulness, he points him to power, love, and self-control. Existing together sort of as a representation of what happens when the Spirit of God dwells in us. As you look ahead to your life, church, we don't face it with fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. It's not what we do. He's given us His Spirit. That's a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. Now that we've been general and sort of spoken to the text, I think, appropriately and applied it broadly to our lives and, and ministry, let's have a, a case study. How might we face this day with power, love, and self-control? Now, it's tempting to face tomorrow morning with fear. The opposite of fear isn't recklessness. You could make the case from a text like this that over here is fear, and the opposite of that is power, love, and self-control. This pandemic is not an opportunity to reinvent the wheel or to completely change how we live forever and ever, but this is an opportunity to show the world a better way to live. Now, when all of this passes and your life goes back to normal, life as normal will be yet another opportunity to show the world a better way to live. A way to show the world a better path than fear. Because don't miss this. And Nate, if you want to go ahead and come on up. When the threat of this virus leaves, something will stay. Fear. It won't go away. It'll change. We're afraid, man. If I've learned anything, I've learned how pervasive fear is in our lives. We're afraid of being seen. Because if we're seen, we're afraid we won't any longer be loved. We're afraid of loneliness. We're afraid we'll work up the courage to try something. A new job, new project, new relationship. And then it will just fail miserably. 
We're afraid we won't be able to please our parents. We're afraid we'll never make it. We're afraid our lives won't matter. We're afraid we'll lose the people closest to us. We're afraid of what life may be like after that happens. Hear this. There's a better way to live than fear. I think of Paul saying to Timothy, you have an incredible gift inside you, brother. Don't waste it. Fan it into flame. Take that spark and like start fanning, man. Because if Timothy's anything like me, and if he ain't got a lighter, he can't get that flame back. Like Nick Clark could probably get the flame back, but I couldn't, you know what I'm saying? Like fan that flame back, man, don't lose it. Let it grow. And from that flame, from that light, let others see clearly. And let others draw near for warmth. So how do we face a day of pandemic (laughs) with power, love, and self-control? We face it with power because we know God has all authority. I recoil when I see the guy post, the government's telling us not to meet. We'll stick it to the government. I'm like, stick to your text, man. This, this virus doesn't lead us to demonize or worship the government. Because our goal, as Paul will say multiple times elsewhere, is to just live a peaceable and quiet life. Paul says to the Romans, be subject to governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. Hey, Romans, I know Caesar says he's the God, man. He's not. He's not, man. He's not. Don't worry about him. Do what he says. And if he marches you to the lions, march. With a song in your heart with every step. Because the authority he thinks he has is given to him by the one who dwells in your heart. All authority. Is subject to God. This doesn't mean every decision government makes is right. It means we're citizens under their watch. And we listen to their advice. We listen to their counsel. In the coming weeks, if we need to take more precautions, we absolutely will. Not because government is in competition with God. That's such a crummy way to see the world. But because the God who reigns over every king, ruler, county clerk, and everyone in between calls us to be kind and try to live a peaceable, agreeable life wherever possible. We are confident in the power of God. We are confident in the authority of God. And no scheme of man nor scheme of hell can pluck us from his hand. So how do we live in these days with love and self-control? Well, we sacrifice for our neighbors. We don't play in the regional finals to beat the Logan Wildcats and go to the state tournament. Not that that happened to me. 
We'll eliminate our actions. We'll be good citizens. We'll, a Christian will change the place they sit in church. That's a big deal. And if our church is too large and the crowd's too big, we just will call it all off. Period. We won't look for conspiracies under every rock. And if you think all of this is just really, really stupid, I, I, I get you. But you'll exercise self-control and you won't make fun of the rest of us who think it's serious. In love, we'll care for the vulnerable among us. Right now, that looks like helping kids eat who won't be in school. Maybe later it will look like serving medical professionals in, in some way if their workload increases. If the situation changes, we'll serve. If the situation calls for people to stand up and sacrificially engage, we'll do it. I shared a blog this week that kind of thought through some of how I thought about this weekend and preparing for it. And I shared a quote from another blog by a sort of thought leader guy named Andy Crouch. And he said this, the Roman world was full of plagues. Epidemics regularly decimated cities and regions. Though ancient people did not understand the germ theory of disease, they knew enough to flee cities if they had the means to do so. The first Christians who saw themselves as the household of God in their cities, don't miss this, even if they had the means, they did not flee. They stayed and they served. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, sociologist Rodney Stark develops a statistical argument that this commitment to stay provide, and provide sort of meaningful care to people stricken by the plague was all by itself a major contributor to the growth of the church in the first centuries of the common era. Because after you had recovered from the plague, where would you want to worship? <laughs> the pagan temple whose priests and elite benefactors fled at the first sign of trouble? Or the household of the neighbor who brought you food and brought you water, who cared for you and con had concern for you at great risk to themselves. And when I read that passage, I think of Lois and Eunice, right? Lois and Eunice are Timothy's legacy of faith. Paul says, this is the legacy you hold. Worship team, you guys can come on up. We're just about done. Lois and Timothy, they're the, Lois and Eunice, they're this legacy of faith that you have, Timothy. Don't waste it. Don't sit on it. And here we sit 2,000 years-ish from there, 500 or much, you know, a long time from some of these plagues that are, that are mentioned. And I think of the many Loises and Eunices who make up our legacy. Not only my mother, Melissa, and her mom, Sue, her real name's Rosalie, but don't tell the government, right? Not only that legacy, which is so dear and near to my heart, but the legacy of people I will never know who stayed and who helped people. The legacy of people today 
Christians today who not just during this crisis chose to help other people at great cost to themselves and their families. Christians who went to war-torn countries to provide aid and relief and a message of hope. Christian doctors who chose not just to rack up the money they can rack up, but to say, yeah, I'll get what I can. I'll, I'll, I'll serve myself and my family. I'll be responsible. But I'm also going to maybe do something to serve folks who are struggling, who can't pay me back. Of missionaries who are gifted teachers of the Bible who can pastor large churches, but that's not their call. Their call is to go and maybe even to die at the hands of a warlord in a desert somewhere. How great a legacy we possess as the people of the crucified king. Let's not sully that legacy. Let's not waste that legacy. Let's not waste it in political banter. Let's not waste it in hatred. Let's not waste it in frivolity. Let's not waste it in fights. Let's not waste it in holier-than-thou attitudes. Let's embrace it. And let's face today and tomorrow and life after this crisis, not with a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. How great a treasure in our legacy, and most importantly, in Christ, the crucified and risen and soon coming King we possess. By that flame inside of us, may the whole world see, and near that flame, may the whole world feel the love of the living God. Let's pray. Father, um, we need leaders. We need, to, um, we need to take our cues for life from somewhere helpful. Father, help this text this morning what it does for each of us individually and corporately. Help it orient us to our neighbors. Help it orient us to our family. Help it orient us to the people on social media. The people living in our city that we don't know. Help us, help us approach them, God, with the spirit of power, love, and self-control. A power that is humble, kind, and bold, yet generous. Help us face our futures with the virus aside. That so many of us are fearful about so many things. Help us face those days with a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of self-control. Remind us, God, in these moments that your spirit dwells in us and that you've given us all we need to live a life of godliness. Grip our hearts with your word. 
Help us turn from our sin and turn to you day in and day out. And now, church, I'll pray just a moment specifically about the virus and all that that may entail. Let's pray together. God, we pray for uh, medical professionals all over the world who are tired, um, that you will give them uh, energy and strength to move on. We pray for those affected, um, that they will uh, find hands that can help. We pray for those who think this is absolutely ridiculous. We pray that they're right. <laughs> but we pray that their hearts would remain soft no matter their outlook. We pray for the many kids and families and grandparents and aunts and uncles as guardians who are affected by several weeks out of school. I even pray for our athletes who have worked for this and, and, and they don't get it, God. I pray that you'll remind them that if this is the worst thing that ever happens to them, then they will have lived a charmed and blessed life. I pray for the church. They will engage this well without virtue signaling and grandstanding. But from a heart of faithfulness, to seek to engage a complex moment with timeless, eternal truth. I pray that we would be helpers, that you would tell us when to stay home, when to do what. <laughs> I pray that you'll get medicine to those who need it. I pray that you'll get testing to those who need it. And now, Spirit, you're praying things we don't even know to pray for. And you hear these prayers from all over the auditorium. We worship you, God, and you alone. And your name is all power, all love, and all justice. Amen. Let's rise and sing together.